Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. For the final time, I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. And for the final time, or the first time, depending on how you view time, if you even believe in time anymore, I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. And Jeff, we are here at the end of our journey with Twin Peaks The Return. Never really ends. But it is going to end, nevertheless. <laughs> it is both not an ending and an ending, and that's the end of uh, that line of thinking. Um, Jeff, this is going to be a fun one, I think. They've all been fun, but we're just going to talk about where we're at with Twin Peaks now. Uh, we've spent all week talking to some really great people, speaking to third-time guest Damon Lindelof and Laura Dern and Kyle MacLachlan. You and I have been texting and calling and tweeting. A lot of our listeners have been chiming in. I think that I have now read theory and counter-theory and counter-counter-theory and counter-counter-counter-theory about literally everything that happened in the last 90 minutes of Twin Peaks. <laughs> Jeff, you know, you've been deep into this thing for a lot longer than than I have. What are your feelings right now about the ending? What do you want to tackle first? Well, let me let me just say some big statement things and then let's dive into some specific questions. And true to our prediction, the only thing that I feel that we got right in our marathon three and a half hour conversation the morning after the finale is that our minds will change continuously over the course of the week about the finale. And every night, I think, or at least maybe several times, it seems to happen in the evening, but I also know what happens throughout the day. I feel like I'm sending you some text that says, oh my gosh, I found a whole new way to think about the end. (laughs) And I'll be honest with you, it's contributed to what is clearly some kind of writer's paralysis that I have when it comes to posting my final review or recap. As of Friday morning here, as we record this, I still haven't posted it. And it's really because I make headway on some thoughts and and then I, I take a break and then I walk away from it and then I have an epiphany and I realize I'm thinking about it in a completely different way. I text you or call you, you have thoughts. They completely change the way that I think about things. I wake up the (laughs) next morning and I start rewriting, which by the way, could be a whole metaphor for what actually happened there at the end of Twin Peaks, because we might be dealing with some kind of eternal recurrence of rewriting time, rewriting histories with heroic endeavor in hopes of getting it right. Um, I thought that maybe I had some kind of nostalgic attachment to this recap in the sense of like, I don't want to let it go. And that could be true. But what I think about more than anything is a pressure about getting it right in terms of serving the reader, you dear listener, I don't want to recollect anything improperly. I don't want to misunderstand anything. I don't want to forget anything. I don't want to project anything onto it confabulate anything. I just, I I feel this responsibility to put it all in perspective and offer some clear accounting of this whole thing. And then I stopped and thought, that's ridiculous. (laughs) That's like, that's an impossible project. And it kind of got me thinking about a little bit of the quote unquote joke, if you will, that is Twin Peaks The Return. 
we were told to think of it as an 18-hour movie. And if you think about the orientation that puts you in, it kind of implies, okay, I'm going to sit and I'm going to watch an 18-hour movie, then I'm going to I'm going to suspend judgment and when I get to the end, I will decide whether or not I like it. I will put it all in perspective and I will be able to answer the question that anyone asks you whether you're just an audience member or a critic when you leave a movie. Did you like it and what was it about? (laughs) (laughs) And if you think about where we're at here at the end of this 18-hour movie to answer the question, what is it about, is kind of hilarious because it was hard enough to keep the first 16 hours of that show in our head (laughs) and make sense of how all the pieces were fitting together and what the story was and where it was going. And then we get these final two hours, which we were kind of expecting to maybe put the 16 hours before it in perspective and if not explain things, then maybe some, you know, bring everything to a conclusion that implicitly explains things. Instead, we get a final two hours that are a maddening, crazy, confusing, exhilarating, thrilling, bewildering, ambiguous thing unto itself. How do we use these two hours to make sense of the 16 hours that came before it when we could barely make sense of these two hours, right? And now I'm kind of thinking, oh, when David Lynch was telling us it's an 18-hour movie, he was doing it with a twinkle in his eye because I think he kind of understood the problem that we were going to have at the end of eight of these 18 hours that he made, which is the way that I told the story, the way I put everything together, and especially the challenge I put to you at the end. How do you sit and reflect on that? How do you, quote unquote, get it right? How do you answer the question of what it's about? And I don't think he realistically expects people to have a perfect clarity of everything to happen that happened and therefore put everything, all the clues together. I don't think he expects everyone to go back and rewatch things and get it all right. I think what he kind of expects you to do is just do as you do with anything with an experience or a piece of art is just rely on your memory. And now, now that's going to become tricky, right? Because we have these 18 hours in our head But how do we reflect on them? How do we recall them correctly? You can't. Your memory is going to play tricks on you. You're going to miss things. You're going to forget things. You're going to confabulate things. You're only going to be able to remember it the way that you remembered it in your own unique way. And that's then, Darren, when it hit me that I just solved Twin Peaks The Return. Because, (laughs) Darren, this isn't a dream. This isn't a reality. This is the confabulated look back memory of someone in this story, someone who is looking back on his or her journey, making sense of their own arc through it, but then putting the pieces together of everyone else's story, maybe some sort of download of storytelling that he got from everyone or, or someone that told him, and, and now he's making sense of everything but he's remembering it in his own way, honestly, but not necessarily as it exactly happened. So Darren, my big theory for you here at the end of Twin Peaks, The Return, is that what we saw was the memory 
of Agent Cooper at some point in the future, looking back on this crazy journey of his life and his return and making sense of it, remembering it the way that he wants to remember it with a lot of confabulation. That's the word that I come back to, confabulation. So the answer to the questions that we're going to ponder, I think, is it a dream? Did it really happen? Yes, it all really happened. But the presentation of this story was one person's look back, confabulated, fantastical memory of it, expressing the truth through the fiction, if you will, of confabulated memory. Does that make sense to you? Uh, Jeff, that makes total sense to me. One of the things that I love so much about that idea and how it kind of helps us to view the show is that, in a way, one of many statements I will say this episode that will probably sound very woozy, memory is kind of a dream. A memory is not quite a real thing the way that we tend to think of reality. A memory is a thing that is certainly based on something that's happened to us, but that we've also filled in. And if it's a memory that we think about a lot, we fill in a lot of details, some of them true, some of them, if we're a great storyteller, better than true. And other memories, if they're memories of stuff that we don't like to think about, take on a very different tone. And one of the things that I love, a lot of people pointed out that in the finale, the setting of Odessa seems to conjure up the name Odysseus, this notion of this grand journey that Agent Cooper takes and indeed has taken, how that ties into the character of Odysseus, who is, if I recall some of my high school English classes correctly, Odysseus is often said to be one of the first sort of modern heroes in this sense of being someone who is not necessarily defined by great strength or by one specific skill set, but that he can do a lot of different things and he's very intelligent and very curious and he sort of goes off on all these adventures. And whenever I think about Dale Cooper in the final hours of Twin Peaks... I really think a lot about this old Tennyson poem. God, I sound really pretentious in this episode already. The old <laughs> Tennyson poem that's about the much older Odysseus or Ulysses, you know, whichever name you think is cooler, probably Ulysses, because um, that's the name of the poem. The much older Ulysses who sort of has returned and wants to set off on more adventures. And this idea of this hero late in life who is kind of looking back on his past journeys, perhaps remembering them differently than they happened, maybe remembering them the way that he chooses to remember them. And what I love about that is it kind of honors every perspective you want to have on Twin Peaks. Did this all really happen? Yes. Did it happen exactly like this? Shrug emoticon. (laughs) Did it happen in this way for the person who's remembering it this way? Yes. And I think that I love that so much. I already get the sense that It's going to become probably a parlor game to get into the semantics of reality and fantasy and what is and isn't a dream, and that's all well and good. But I think that, to your point exactly about trying to hold this whole Twin Peaks adventure in our heads, for us, this wasn't an 18-hour movie. For us, this was a summer. That's how I'm always going to remember Twin Peaks, The Return. This was a (laughs) season. This was like a season of my life with a lot of memories tied into it that go beyond the show, and I'm sure it's that way for a lot of people. What I think I return to is whenever I find myself 
grappling with individual frames of part 18, which I certainly have been doing that I'm sure a lot of our listeners have as well. I recall that just sort of randomly spur of the moment last week, I had an hour to kill at home and just literally spun the dial on my DVR and picked a random episode of The Return to Watch. And it happened to be part six, the episode that begins with Dougie Cooper sort of lovingly underneath the statue of the cowboy trying to sort of cover one of his hands with his jacket sleeve. And that episode, for people who might forget, is largely about Dougie tackling the case files. And there is a five-minute scene of him just sort of drawing little signs and symbols across the case files, one of which is a stairway, which already my brain is running to the fact that Dale ascends a stairway in part 18. But what I love when I think about Twin Peaks is... The form of this is an 18-hour chunk of just lots of stuff happening, and it really recodes for me what is and isn't important, and when we had the great Laura Dern guest star the other day, she made the great point of the time that Lynch as a filmmaker took with all these scenes. And so I find that when I want to try and grapple with this, and as you said, explain, what's it about? What did you think? My only response is really like, well, there's 130 things off the top of my head I can think about that I loved. And there are sequences that stick out to me. And it's very difficult for me to say that those things add up to a whole, except to say that they all came from this thing called Twin Peaks The Return. And I find that to be pretty remarkable. I unfortunately don't have any cool idea like, It's all somebody's memory. But I would just add to that, do you think it is Dale Cooper's memory? Is that something that you've really kind of locked into? Or do you think there is another person who could be remembering this in their own way? Um, Yes. My answer to your question is yes. Um, No. Um, Which is to say that I think it could be one person. It could be multiple people. I think that it could be the shared dream of a lot of people. It could just be David Lynch's dream, you know, in a season in which you got the sense that David Lynch, the artist, dreamed a lot of his own life and work and themes and preoccupations into this story. They were there to be seen and decoded. I do think that David Lynch is the ultimate dreamer who dreams into this. I'm taken with some fan theories out there that seems to suggest that the implication of the show is that we are the dreamer. That's sort of based on this idea of like some very clever real world blurring that is happening. Like the fact that the owner of the real life Palmer House played Mrs. Tremont there at the end. Maybe it's, it's Laura Palmer. Because I do think that there at the end, Cooper and Laura were there together. So maybe they're dreaming this thing together. Maybe the idea is that every single person that has a claim to this story, when they think about it, reflect upon it, this is how they all remember it, which is kind of ironic then, because then they're all remembering it the same way. (laughs) Uh, You know, what I also come back to is the return as sort of a metaphor for how we remember Twin Peaks. Everyone has their different relationship to Twin Peaks. I'm talking now about the original show and everyone remembers it differently from the people who watched it and appreciate it and loved it for different things and were either satisfied by it or 
betrayed by it, exhilarated by it, influenced by it, or profoundly frustrated by it. The TV show producers of today that were influenced by it, the TV critics of today, the journalists that were influenced by it, that were just people who've discovered over the years. We all remember it differently. We all value it for different things. We all have our different memory and relationship to it. David Lynch has a different relationship to it and memory of it. Mark Frost has his own relationship and memory to it. The actors do. And I feel like Maybe in a way we got a story that manages to, or tries to at least, contain all of that in a sort of this massively cubist kind of way in which everyone's perspective and angle on it is somehow reflected back in a fashion. But more than anything, I think it reflects back, you know, Lynch's relationship to this. You know, I was struck by the whole revelation at the end that the big bad of the Twin Peaks universe is Zhao Wei or Zhao Dei. Sorry, I'm confusing all my mythology of pantheon of gods in my head, I guess. Um, but Zhao Dei or Judy, in our earlier conversations, we've kind of fixated on this notion that Zhao Dei is this link to this Chinese word meaning to explain. And so it's a wink, wink joke that speaks to David Lynch's refusal to want to explain himself. And maybe that's all true. I'm more struck by his description of Zhao Dei as a entity of negative energy. And if you have done any sort of study or if you've talked to Lynch over the years about his work, he will tell you that the sad demise of Twin Peaks, it started as a beautiful dream and then became a nightmare and it catalyzed for him a dark period for him in the 90s. He uses those phrases like dark period, dark age. And he often talks about the idea of negativity and positivity and how he always feels negativity while making a work. He certainly feels negativity about ending a work because he's he's sad that the dream is ending, but he's also getting really anxious about what people are going to make of it. And he also clearly understands that depending on how it's received, this is going to affect his life and his ability to make more art. And so there with the demise of Twin Peaks and then the subsequent flame out of Firewalk With Me and then the very mixed, polarized flop reception of Lost Highway, he talks about this period of his life as being kind of swamped with a lot of negativity. And it's pointed to me then that maybe for him, he looks back on Twin Peaks as this This beautiful thing, I'm sure, it probably means a lot of things to him, but it's tainted with this negativity and that with the return, he has the opportunity to rewrite history. He has an opportunity to put on a green glove and obliterate the big ball of negativity (laughs) that is associated with Twin Peaks. He has an opportunity to stand in front of this haunted house that's possessed with negativity and just scream at it and blow out its windows and redeem it. So I kind of feel like in this sort of 18 hour moving painting that he's made, the subject that he's painting is Twin Peaks and every brushstroke and every color that he's putting on that canvas, i.e. our screens, we're feeling something that he feels about Twin Peaks itself and having a chance to sort of reclaim it and redeem it But more than anything, the only thing that he can realistically do, because he can't control whether or not he's going to succeed or how we're going to think of it, is just to make peace with it. 
And that's what I get from the return. I feel like it's a cathartic exercise. Uh, it's, you know, uh, Lauren Cooper, I think in some ways do get some catharsis at the end, but I think the people who made it got some catharsis too. Mm-hmm. You're making me realize that probably another thing I like so much about this show is that David Lynch seems to be the one person who liked the 90s less than I did. <laughs> We're in this phase now where just the 90s nostalgia overload that I think particularly afflicts people my age has gotten a little bit wearisome. While that's happening, you also have these prof- Found works of art, whether it's the later stages of Show Me a Hero or certainly of the people versus O.J. Simpson that are taking a much more profound look at the decade. But it just felt to me like for a long time there, it was just everybody was like, oh, the 90s, we love it so much. And I'm taken with the fact that Lynch is probably the one guy who's like, oh, no, 1991 through 2000, generally a pretty dark period for me. <laughs> the new century has had its share of problems, but uh, things have certainly looked up in some respects. I'd I'd love to know, Jeff, while we've been digging into the finale in particular and seeing a lot of other thoughts about it, what sticks out to you? Some of the most interesting ideas about the finale, some of the most provocative questions that you personally have about it. As you've been digging into just this sort of final act of the show, what are the things that are still really tantalizing for you or the ideas, you know, maybe digging into the Judy thing more? I get the sense that perhaps in our... 90-day recap of the finale. I am aware that I certainly myself may have jumped a little too quickly to the, yes, 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 Judy, interesting, but let's focus on the potential badness of the hero here. Yeah. I'm, I'm very aware of that. I mean, people know I've been locked into that idea perhaps too much since watching season two of Twin Peaks, but it is it is interesting, the Judiness of the finale and you know what that all means and how that kind of ties together. What's the stuff that's kind of top of your head right now, just with regard to the sort of wrap-up of the return. Well, let's just talk about some specific issues and let's just kind of move around a little randomly. Um, but let's just talk specifically about what we think happened at the end. In some ways, it might really be the only question that matters, or at least it's the question that answers maybe any other issue that we can talk about, which is what happened there at the end. And I think that some of our listeners, either on email, which we really thank you for all your letters, including the ones that are as long as my 8,000 word recaps. (laughs) I like to pour myself a cup of coffee and and spend hours reading them. And they've been really kind of thrilling to read. Uh, One thing that I think that people may have been pushing back against me on, and I think maybe not wrongly, is... I really kind of wanted to make sense of the finale outside of a context of its own supernatural mythology. I wasn't looking at things through the perspective of, say, the lodges or the mythology and all of that. I I was kind of more looking at it through the perspective of Cooper, like you, his own tortured, fraught hero's journey, as well as sort of the catharsis of Laura, and then kind of exclusively through the cosmological prism of time travel reboot. Uh, What reality are we in? But I think a lot of people were kind of asking like, no, is there something there about the end about that house? Are we dealing with Lodge mythology here? 
And I feel like kind of looking at it narrowly through that point of view, that has been kind of fun. And that has been rewarding to think about how the mythology of the show explains it. And, and I don't really have a ton of conclusions about that yet, but I do kind of like this idea that Alice Tremont there at the end was maybe the incarnation of Judy and that this house is a lodge outpost. But maybe more than that, Darren, maybe it is ultimately now in this reality, the heart of the spiritual universe of this reality, of all of the realities. It is an ironic Black Lodge because it is a white house and it's seemingly normal and all of that, but it's actually the dark heart of this larger Twin Peaks universe. You know, okay, now I'm talking myself into something here because in my recapping of this whole thing over the years and my own reflection on it from mythology, I've been constantly aware of writing something that I don't necessarily agree with. And it is this, calling the Red Room the Black Lodge. Like I've never been convinced that the Red Room is the Black Lodge. That maybe the Red Room is some sort of purgatorial place that is in between or is our access point into the larger realms of the Black Lodge, a place of evil, and a White Lodge, which I'm now assuming to be the place where the fireman lives, right? I could be wrong about that too. So I'm wondering if there, at the end of Twin Peaks The Return, if the show finally took us to a place that we've talked about for years, which is the Black Lodge, that is the real Black Lodge. We're in this spiritual space. We're not in the real Twin Peaks. We're in the deepest layer of this it's inception right yeah. we're in the dream and the dream and the dream and the dream it's sort of like the bottom layer of this mystic reality and here in the ultimate underworld we have finally arrived at the black lodge and it's represented by the white house of the palmer house and here all the souls that have ever been captured by the black lodge including sarah palmer are trapped and reside. And it's a psycho dark place. It's a completely vertiginous place. And I think in a final hour that I think was maybe implicitly referencing psycho and uh, vertigo, that might be kind of appropriate. But I think that that's maybe kind of where we visited there. That was the Black Lodge. And that was always the thing to be destroyed and somehow, some way, in the nick of time, Cooper remembered that, and he was following some instinct within him to execute that mission with the weapon at his disposal, which is Laura Palmer. And before I turn it over to you and see what you think about that idea, I want to explain my psycho reference there, <laughs> which is, I'm haunted by this possibility, Darren, that and I forget what her name is, but I want to kind of tip my hat to the owner of the real life Palmer House because the more I think about her performance as Alice Tremond, the more she fucking creeps me out. Just <laughs> the utter like she is maybe one of the most quintessential embodiments of that Lynchian idea of evil where the banal facade hides 
real evil. And credit to all the storytelling that is leading us up to that moment, because we are just feeling such dread in that moment. So it's imbuing her performance too. So credit Lynch as well. But I do think that we were looking at the face of evil. You know, Lynch has always said that one of the unsafest places in the world is the home, because the home is the place where things can go wrong, because you don't expect things to go wrong in your home. And so I think those themes were all being played there in this White House with this seemingly benign, lovely, helpful, but kind of deadpan, I'm just playing with you, maybe, person who answers the door. Maybe she's a maternal figure. I'm, I'm losing it here, but I want to explain my psycho thread. The psycho idea is, you know how in Psycho that Norman Bates is keeping his mother around, but he's talking to her. We think that she's alive and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but she's not really alive. So... You know those scenes where she's poking her head behind the door to talk to her husband about the history of the house, and we hear his voice, but we never see him, and then she turns back and then like relays the answers to Laura and Cooper. What if there is no husband in that house? Mm -hmm. What if she's making that voice herself behind (laughs) that door? That's a total psycho idea, right? Absolutely. And the whole idea that this haunted house hides a revelation about mother Mother, of course, now being embodied by Sarah Palmer up there. And then, of course, the great Cheryl Lee shriek, which is a total Janet Lee psycho shriek. And I've I've talked with you about this before, this whole idea that maybe in the beginning of the season, the power station floating in space with first NATO inside and then the American girl inside. Before Cooper leaves the American girl, they're hearing that pounding on the door. And I think that she identifies her as mother. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Um, But she's trying to get in. I'm wondering if that now represents kind of foreshadowing of the end in the sense that American Girl equals Sarah Palmer and Mother, i.e. Alice Tremont, has gotten in and has banished very bad, bad girl Sarah Palmer to some kind of dark corner of the house. So, uh, yeah, I have some other thoughts, particularly as it pertains to the Red Room and of all people, the Mitchum brothers. I'll get to that in a second. But turn it over to you. Like, what do you think of that? And are you thinking about anything? Yes, I love to death, Jeff, your idea that that house that we saw at the end, whether you want to call it the Palmer House, whether you want to call it the Earth Prime Palmer House, a lot of people on Twitter who have also, like me, read all the way to the end of the Dark Tower have kind of connected some of the things that happen in this last episode to what ultimately happens in the Dark Tower. I really don't want to spoil it, but suffice it to say that, this is not a spoiler, in the Dark Tower there is this idea that Stephen King sort of runs throughout his work that there is some central point of the universe. And I love your idea that that is this. That's what we're seeing. This is the Black Lodge. Would just add to that something that you made me realize, which is 
if the Black Lodge is not necessarily this supernatural space, I, like you, have always been a little hesitant to call the Red Room the Black Lodge, and I'm equally hesitant now as I see people sort of making these broad assertions about who is Judy and who is the experiment. It feels to me like it's a lot more fluid. But if we assume that within Twin Peaks there is a Black Lodge, I would argue that there is a White Lodge too, a space that is actually the one single bit of Twin Peaks locality that we got in that final drive with Agent Cooper and the woman who was Laura Palmer, who is now Carrie. And the idea that there is a space that is filled only with the opposite of Garmin Bosia, that of course would be coffee and pie. So I'm very struck by the fact that all those moments we spent inside of the Double R Diner, we weren't just in a place that we love, a place that feels like a home away from home. We were indeed in the very heart and soul of all that is good in this world. I love that. So the double R is the White Lodge. And in one universe, at least, Jeff, you can get coffee to go there. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. You know what I like about that? Because that kind of really fits then with what we saw. Because Cooper and Laura driving through downtown Twin Peaks, the only place they see is the Double R Diner, and what did it take pains to kind of establish all season long? You know, the thing that surprised me about it was that it was closed. Mm -hmm. It was dark. And I kind of got the impression throughout the season that the Double R was now a 24-hour diner. So the idea that they have entered into the spiritual heart of this world which could also equally be, quote unquote, the real world. I think all of these things, these terms are irrelevant to David Lynch and the world of Twin Peaks. It's all real. The spiritual reality is real. Mm -hmm. The physical reality is real. We might experience it from different perspectives, but the idea then symbolically or here in this spiritual place that this beautiful space that is the White Lodge where everyone comes together and meets the community and there is there is cherry pie there's the best cherry pie ever and coffee and a meal for everyone and as the communion kind of metaphor there you know but that place has gone dark but there in the dark of the night the Sarah Palmer house is all lit up this black lodge which is ironically expressed as a white lodge yeah i really like that darren i like that And, you know, would just add, yes, the White Lodge in this world has gone dark, but by the end of the episode, so has the Black Lodge. And, you know, we can interpret that in a lot of different ways. Would just also add, Jeff, something you said made me think a little bit about the idea of what we're seeing in that final scene. And because I am a lapsed Catholic, I always think a lot about this idea of the Messiah and of sacrifice. And I think that is something on Lynch's and Frost's mind. Also, Um, they are both tapped into a lot of different traditions of religion and spirituality. So I'm very hesitant to apply anything as prosaic as my own religious upbringing to this. But I find it very interesting that what we see in that final moment and like you I both don't have a bead on the Black Lodge mythology of it all, but I'm also in awe of the fact that the show might. I feel like I came very early in this season to the idea of like, you know, 
I'm not so sure the show itself is all that interested in solving this, and I don't think the finale is going to require me to think too much about that. So full props to Lynch and Frost for yet again wonderfully surprising us with a final 90 minutes that just took the mythology and shook it and just took it up into the stratosphere. What I always latch on to is the idea that somehow... Dale Cooper forced Laura Palmer to remember, forced her to relive something, that here was a version of Laura Palmer, one of five or six different iterations of Cheryl Lee, and whatever her problems were, she didn't remember Twin Peaks, and she didn't remember what happened to her there, and she didn't remember that house and its its horrors, and Whether you think what happens at the end is triumphant, I've certainly seen a lot of people say that this is a plan coming together perfectly, or whether you think it is truly dark, if you kind of read this ending as some H.P. Lovecraft short story, there is no defeating the evil because the evil is all. I don't buy that, but I also see elements of that. Whatever else is happening there... There's this sense of profound violation, and I think that it goes right back to the primal origin of all of this. And I think that, you know, the idea of Dale Cooper rescuing Laura in his own way by forcing her to relive that, I I shouldn't say forcing, but certainly by guiding her towards that moment you mentioned. I love the comparison to Psycho, that scream, that scream that almost feels to me like it might be Lynch and Frost, perhaps trying to close the door on something that Psycho created. I'm a great fan of the film writer and, and theorist David Thompson, who always kind of in his writing tends to view Psycho as this moment of profound transgression. It's like Psycho is sort of the episode eight atomic bomb going off of the back half of the 20th century. And I love that stuff because I love anything that treats pop culture and art that way. But I'm very struck by this idea that Laura Palmer goes out screaming, awful. I can't think of anything worse. The White Lodge, if we want to call it that, the double R has gone black. But perhaps the Palmer House, as you said, is also lights going off, electricity being shut down. And I guess I I wonder if it is a way of these collaborators, these people who are older, and this was a show that celebrated the elderly and there were times on this show when there'd be two people on screen representing a collective 170 years of life you know like I love how much this show sort of loved and treated its older characters and I I wonder if it's the show kind of saying you know what we're gonna lose something when we lose this we're going to lose the Palmer house and it may be forgotten. It may be shut down. We can agree that's a good thing. We may lose the double R and that's a sad thing, but maybe we do have to lose both of those things or maybe not. Maybe Dale Cooper isn't doing the right thing at the end. It feels to me that what I keep on latching into is whatever he's doing, the vehicle for it is making Cheryl Lee scream. And there's something wrong about that. 
And yet that is the thing that in a strange way you could argue it created Twin Peaks. And I think that the spiritual grappling with all of that goes right back around to the idea of Catholicism, which centers on a sacrifice. It's right there inside of every church. The statue of Christ on the cross that hung horrifically in the center of my church growing up is an image that I will never get out of my head. Probably the point, one could argue. And I just think that to grapple with all of that in the final moments of a show is just something very profound and something that taps into spirituality in a way that it's hard to even think of other shows and other works of art grappling towards. Yeah, if I could respond to that, I really like what everything you're saying. And I do think that there is this critique of heroic enterprise going on in the return that I I actually think that might be hard for some fans to accept because I get the sense from some theories that I've read, there is this effort to want to make Cooper all good and that everything he did there at the end was ultimately kind of this righteous thing and correct thing. I even feel that tension because I I love Cooper and I, I, I do want to make him all good. But I kind of get this sense that Lynch and Frost are operating from this level of looking at the problems of the world and saying the problems of the world are a result in part of a lot of mistakes of the past that have never been corrected and it's become institutionalized and we've almost become invested in them. And there's no easy way to repair any of this stuff without some people losing or causing people pain, right? For example, I hear what in what you're saying about Cooper and Laura there at the end, and I don't like Cooper either for making Laura suffer again and triggering her again and feeling this pain again. But I almost wonder if in that metaphor, it's saying that's part of this problem. It's the show not trying to make that good at all. It's actually just an expression of how complicated and screwed up the problem of evil is in this world. Is is that here in this act of heroism, we're going to have to make this person suffer all over again. Like It's almost like an expression of how complicated these things are. Related, but maybe separate, I am struck by the perspective on the atomic bomb which seems to be this myth of heroic enterprise to inform everything in this show. The race to create the atomic bomb was all about trying to save the world from evil, to develop it before the Germans do, and then to use it against them in the Axis powers, right? But in the mythology of Twin Peaks, so that, yes, that heroic enterprise succeeded and it helped end that war, It also killed a lot of people that we could say were innocent. And it also was a one of many sort of huge moments in the explosive growth of an American culture that gave us a lot of good things, but a lot of bad things. 
And how do we redeem the bad things and extricate those bad things without undermining the stuff that we like? I, I think it's complicated. How, how do we purge those things out? Uh, how do we do that? I just think it's, it's hard. It's complicated. Yeah. So every, someone loses, someone is greatly pained in any of these correct heroic endeavors. I think about Cooper leaving behind Janie E and Sonny Jim in Vegas, you know, Dude's got to go. He's got to go save the world. But he's going to leave Janie E and Sonny Jim without any explanation. And he's going to destroy their lives all over again. I mean, she was stuck in a bad marriage with a horrible man who was prone to flights of fancy, who would just abandon and come back with massive debts that would screw over the family. He wasn't there as a father. I'm speaking of like the Dougie that obviously Mr. C created. But then here comes this new Dougie, Cooper, and he brings all these blessings into their life and, and redeems this life. But then he's got to go, he reactivates his agent Cooper, and he's got to go save the day. But that's going to mean like hurting this person all over again in exactly the way that she's been hurt before by her husband, like completely abandoning her for some whim, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So there's an interesting way in which they play it, which is like, I kind of don't hate Cooper for this because we understand why he's got to do what he's going to do but at the same time we just kind of feel the it just kind of presented kind of it is what it is yeah he he has to do this but people are going to get screwed and that's part of the problem yeah jeff uh i'd love to know you were sort of teasing us a little bit but you've been texting me a rather handy way of looking at Twin Peaks The Return, and I believe you call it the Everything Explains Everything Else Theory, which is very handy, possible title for a future book that you're going to write. But you were specifically mentioning this with regards to two characters who I love dearly, and I'm already hesitant to ask you this, but the Mitchum brothers, how do they play into the Everything Explains Everything Else Theory? (laughs) The Everything Explains Everything Else Theory kind of reflects on the fact that so many of the stories in Twin Peaks The Return and the seasons seem to sort of mirror each other in retrospect or even in the moment. So I found myself thinking about speaking of things that I'm puzzling over and confused about, but I find myself asking a lot of questions about the role that Mike the One-Armed Man played and the Red Room beings in general this season and their relationship to Agent Cooper. And it kind of struck me that they kind of served as these sort of patrons of Agent Cooper, at least Mike did, trying to help him along his path, make him remember, help him in his heroic quest. But Cooper's got this alliance going on, if you will, with Red Room, and he seems to almost be aligned with them and serving them. And it kind of struck me, is that a good thing? Because I think that the Red Room is ultimately a very ambiguous place morally. And I'm not sure I trust anyone who lives there. And I made me wonder if I should be trusting Mike, the one-armed man. And I found myself also thinking about another unanswered mystery, which was ultimately... Who was that voice on the phone with Mr. C earlier in the season? 
when Mr. C thought that he was talking to Agent Jeffries, but it turned out it was someone else and he didn't know who it was. But all that guy said ultimately at the end was, tomorrow you're going back into the lodge and I will be reunited with Bob again. And we never got a hard answer on who that guy was. So my theory is that that guy was Mike. So Mike wants Bob. Mike wants to be reunited with Bob. And what did Bob do for the Red Lodge? Like, what was the problem with Bob? Was the problem with Bob that he was just a really horrible person who killed a lot of people? Or did he play a vital role in the Red Room and how it works? And the problem with Bob is that he didn't follow the rules or he was greedy. I think that looking back, I think on either Twin Peaks Firewalk with me or some moments in the Red Room, I kind of got the sense that the issue that maybe the Red Room deities had with Bob is that he didn't like to share the Garmin Bosia. He liked to hoard it for himself. And whenever he killed, he got brought back into the Red Room. The man from the other place basically says, give me my Garmin Bosia. And you got the sense that Bob kind of gives it reluctantly, right? So maybe he's just this kind of greedy servant who wants things for himself and wants ultimate power for himself and he doesn't want to share. Basically, Bob then ends up being the guy who's powering the Red Room and feeding these Red Room deities. He's giving them blood sacrifice. He's giving them the Garmin Bosia that they feed on. And so he's their reaper. He's their delivery man. He's their insurance man. He's the one that makes sure that they stay alive and they flourish. And so why does Mike want Bob back. Well, I think he wants Bob back, not because he wants to bring Bob to justice. I think they want to corral him and make him play the part that he's always played in the Red Room, which is to go and harvest Garmin Bosia and bring it back to them. But I just kind of wondered if that relationship was modeled by Dougie and the Mitchum brothers. And the, the Mitchum brothers are Mike and everyone else uh, who lives in the Red Room. They are underworld figures, and they're not good people. They were really funny. They showered Dougie and his family with a lot of material reward, as you kind of said before in our conversations, like a kind of transactional morality, you know, which is like they rewarded him for some good stuff as long as he produced for them. But otherwise, it was a completely contingent relationship. It was an economic relationship. They were not good guys. They were going to kill him. They have a master-slave relationship with the Andy sisters. They essentially hold those girls hostages. Um, a Cooper, Dougie Cooper then, essentially kind of functions as this tool of these people. Uh, so in that way, Dougie models what Bob represents to the Red Room, but so does Cooper, because Cooper is ultimately executing a mission on behalf of Mike to essentially bring back Bob to the Red Room, and that's not a good thing. I got completely lost, Darren, 
in my explanation and I'm really sorry. But that's the kind of mirroring I'm talking about, which is I feel that there is something familiar in the way that the Mitchum brothers related to Cooper, the way that Mike in the Red Room relates to Cooper. Can you make sense of anything that I just told you? I can make total sense of it, Jeff. I actually don't think you got lost. And you're bringing up something that I think is very important, which is I get the sense that there are a few people out there. I'm not chastising this instinct, but there are people who are kind of like, so the first 16 episodes didn't matter at all. And this kind of runs alongside of something else I saw, some response I saw throughout the season, this idea that Lynch and Frost were in some ways trolling us. First of all, I hate the word trolling. I think it gets thrown around all the time. People who do troll are obviously awful human beings. But as applied to art, and especially something like Twin Peaks, I find it infuriating the idea that anyone would think that Lynch and Frost were just doing something for the sake of you know just like oh this will really like be hilarious like, I don't know I find that as goofy as a lot of this show can be I think it's approached in all sincerity by everyone I think that the sort of spiritual and moral depth of it is proof of that but I think it's important to not forget Vegas when we talk about the return because and this is something that we discussed way, way back in our kind of first arrival in Las Vegas at, at Dougie's Awakening. This mirroring of Twin Peaks there, which there's not much of it, but I would say there's just enough. Sycamore Street, seeing the 119 girl and her son. And I seem to recall that, Jeff, you had sort of compared that to the Tremond maternal, grand maternal figure and son figure, this idea of these sort of archetypes that reoccur wherever Cooper slash the Black Lodge sort of has any kind of residency. And I kind of wonder if the Vegas of this season was in some respects a couple of lefties, Lynch and Frost both. And, you know, if you follow Frost on Twitter, his political inclinations are pretty clear. Lynch, we've talked about, has sort of been open about. He was a supporter at some point of Bernie Sanders. Here's a couple of old lefties taking a look at what they think the new America is. What is the the wrapping up of 20th century America that is happening? What is the end of Twin Peaks we are seeing? Is it the end of the double R and of the Palmer household? What is the new America now? Well, it is incredibly stratified. You have on one side the Mitchum brothers living with the Andy sisters in some sort of extremely post-lapsarian family dynamic. On the other end, you have the people living in Rancho Rosa, this sort of dream of a suburban community way out in the desert that just seems like it never came to pass. And all you have there are these, to me, deeply tragic and sincere portraits of the 119 woman, this person who just seems to be doing every drug at once and seems to not even really move herself anymore, calling for help, but doing so literally backwards. And is this something that they support? No. And yet there is a certain weird 
I wouldn't say positivity to it, but the idea of still within this really almost post-apocalyptic landscape of finding a family unit, this possibility that someone who looks like Kyle MacLachlan could be a good father and a good husband, and that you know there are people like Janie E who have this profound amount of strength to them, whatever their materialist urges might be. And I would even say that... As I'm saying this, I, I want to be very clear. I think that certainly in the work of David Lynch, uh, the possibility of something being both negative and positive is almost central to a lot of his ideas. But everything you said about the Mitchum brothers and their master-slave relationship, I think it's there. I would also point out that at one point in the season, there's the suggestion of them perhaps no longer needing Candy's services. And what one of the brothers says is, where is she? gonna go i don't mean this to imply that their relationship is at all proper just to say that even in las vegas even where there are these craven one percenters who operate entirely in a transactional way there are people who do that and seem to be purposefully collecting people around them trying to sort of build some sort of strange family i think the fact that the mitchum brothers are established as orphans is very interesting to that you almost kind of wonder if the one one nine woman's son is following in, in in the mitchum's footsteps and you know so, so there's them and then there's the other people the people like ike the spike stat and the people like Duncan Todd. So I'm struck by the fact that Las Vegas in Twin Peaks might be their depiction of the future as much as it is an echo of what's going on elsewhere. I wonder if it's also them kind of saying in 1990, Twin Peaks was the most profound echo of what was going on in the Red Room and in the supernatural spaces. And now perhaps it's becoming a place like Las Vegas. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Not sure. I know some people who like living in Vegas and some people who think it's the den of all American sin. And I think that's there in the show. And I just think that to accomplish that and to do everything that you're saying with the mirroring is something that is very profound. And you know what? Las Vegas does still have Bushnell Mullins, so it's not all bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really like everything that you said. That was really well said. I remembered the thing that I felt like I was losing the thread of in my big... Red Room equals Vegas idea. And I think it was the the big idea that I kind of was talking to you about on text. And it was this. Who's one of the big losers then in a story in which Freddie takes his green glove and smashes Bob into a billion pieces? Well, it's the guy who wanted to be reunited with Bob, oh. which was Mike in the Red Room, right? So I find it interesting what happens after that, which is it's at that point that Cooper begins this kind of crazy journey into well, all sorts of journeys within journeys within journeys, connected to journeys, connected to journeys, connected to journeys. But the first thing that he ultimately does is that he goes into the Great Northern, he passes into some inland empire mystic underworld, and he encounters Mike. And Mike takes him to Jeffries, and Jeffries transports Cooper back in time. And Cooper then saves Laura. Well, then who gains from Laura being saved? 
well, sure, I guess that in this misguided way or dubious way, questionable way, he's saving Laura's life and erasing a lot of suffering that happened after that, including Cooper's own abduction into the Black Lodge, the Red Room. But Mike also benefits from this relationship with this action, because that means that if uh, assuming that an entity like Bob is bound by the slippery kind of logic of time travel logic, retconning the past would then obliterate any story that resulted in Bob's obliteration. Mm. So we, we talked earlier this week about the sort of hilarious thing that happens with Mr. C in the finale, right? That you find out that all this, this mad quest that he's had all season long to find the coordinates and get into the White Lodge or whatever it was that he was seeking, an audience with the entity that might have been Judy, or he wanted to get into the place, the fireman's house with all of his time travel, time capsule batteries or, or whatever, or maybe he was looking for something else. We could talk about that in a second. But ultimately, it turned out that he was being lured into a trap. He was being lured into a sting operation. He never had the right coordinates for where he wanted to go. And when he ultimately trusted in the coordinates that he had, he found himself in a trap set by the firemen and he was spit out into the sheriff's department where he was ultimately killed by Lucy. So it led to a trap that led to his destruction. So he'd been duped all along by a scheme that was essentially hatched, as far as I can tell, by the firemen. Um, mm-hmm. He was played, he was set up, and he was made to do something that ultimately benefited cosmic powers, but completely left him betrayed. If you think then that Cooper and Mr. C are like essentially doppelgangers, but there's a lot of mirroring that's going on with their stories, I find it then interesting to consider that maybe Cooper himself was being duped and betrayed by cosmic forces, which is to say that all along, when he went back into Twin Peaks, he had this plan to execute a bit of time travel, but you wondered if that was an idea that was pumped into him by Mike and the Red Room people. Like, okay, so here's the plan, Cooper. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go do what you're supposed to do. But then you almost wonder if the White Lodge uh, with the firemen and the Red Room deities and maybe even Judy are playing this game between each other that takes place, you know, outside of time, through looping time, through looping history. They're playing some kind of like three-dimensional chess with each other. And Coopers have been pawns, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? That makes total sense to me. Jeff, I'd like to know a question that we've both been talking about this week that... I'm not sure if this is a skeleton key for understanding the whole season or just the first and most tantalizing mystery, but when do you think that scene between Agent Cooper and the fireman, that scene that is the first new thing that we see in Twin Peaks, The Return, giving of the clues, 430, Richard and Linda, two birds, one stone, it's in our house now, you are far away, Blink away. Bye-bye, Agent Cooper. When do you think that takes place in the narrative? Is that even a crazy question to ask? 
No, like this is a really great question to ask. And we've been talking about it. And I think that I've gone back and forth on it because the theory that we kind of both love, but I'm not exactly sure I believe in, is, is that that scene is the end of the show. We kind of thought that what we were, well, and we were right about this. We thought that what we were seeing in that moment was a flash forward. And we thought that what we were going to get was that at some point during this story, Agent Cooper is going to get beamed up into the White Lodge by the firemen and was going to get these clues these cryptic comments that was going to help. Then he was going to return back to earth and he was then going to follow these clues or look for these signs and to know that he was on the right path to solve the problems that he had to solve. Right. And so, but the what was strange thing about that was that we never got that scene. It never happened. We never saw Cooper get uploaded and, and we never got to see him, remember these things. We thought that what we thought in that moment was we were getting something similar to season two of Twin Peaks when the giant played by the same actor, and it might be the same character. Maybe the giant just got a promotion, (laughs) Um, uh, gave Cooper those clues. You know, the owls are not what they seem. There is a man in a smiling bag and that gum you chew is going to come back in style that when Cooper heard those sayings or phrases, that he would understand that he was on the right path to find the killer of Laura Palmer. So we thought that something similar was going to happen this season. He was going to get beamed up. He would get these clues. He would come back. He would look for the signs. He would solve the mystery. But that never happened. So when then did that scene take place? And one possibility, and if we could talk through several different possibilities here, is, is that that was actually the end of this story. Think about maybe an event that happens right after Laura screams and the windows get blown out. Cooper is then uploaded, beamed up, has an audience with the firemen. And what the firemen could be saying here is, it is in our house now. He could be saying to Cooper, mission accomplished. We have recollected either Judy or Bob or Laura. She is back in our house now. And then when he says, remember Richard and Linda, whatever those digits are, two birds, one stone. You could look at it one of two ways there, which is... Cooper's now going to be sent back in time and relive this whole story over. And he's being asked to relive it again, being more aware of those clues so that it could guide him better in his journey. Or he could be giving these things to Cooper here at the end of his journey to sort of tell him, you're stuck in a dream, wake up. Mm -hmm. Um this is all to say, though, I've taken, uh, in a way that I'm, I guess, clearly still trying to figure out, I'm taken with the notion that that moment there, which was essentially the second scene of the show in part one, because the first part was the whole moment between Cooper and Laura in which she says, I'll see you again in 25 years. We cut to the credits. We come out of the credits and we get this scene with the firemen. I am taken with the notion that that scene is the end of the show. 
I love that idea so much, Jeff. Um, the two interpretations that I have kind of developed that are a little bit different, but what one could argue run alongside of them in some respects. The first thing I've really latched on to, and this is actually something that in our conversations you'd kind of called out to me a little bit, the effect by which Cooper disappears in that scene, that scratching off disappearance. We only really see that, I believe, two times, or at least certainly two times towards the end of the show. Once when Laura Palmer's body disappears, and once when Agent Cooper suddenly appears in the past. And I've been kind of playing around with the idea, could you stitch that scene with the fireman into Cooper's journey to the past as he leaves Philip Jeffries, as he moves towards 1989? Does he speed through on the trans-temporal highway by the old Space Castle movie theater in the sky where the fireman gives him one last set of clues? The follow-up to that is... Because I feel that I have to kind of own one idea that I felt very strongly watching the finale, which is this idea that Cooper's time spent away from Earth was not all in the Red Room, that he was perhaps having some sort of communion, some sort of conversations with other figures that inhabit the supernatural spaces. The way that when Diane comes out and he asks her, do you remember everything? He's perhaps referring to things they experienced together in some respect on their long sojourn away from our reality. And I am a little inclined to also say maybe that does happen before everything else. But what that means is that this is Agent Cooper in that supernatural space, perhaps having one of many conversations with the fireman. And perhaps had we checked in on that conversation a little earlier, the fireman would have offered many other clues. Perhaps one of the clues would have been Janie E, Jim Set. Sunny Jim, Lucky Seven, you know, it was, were we kind of coming in at the tail end of a very extended briefing? That's just something else that I've been wondering about. And I am struck, Jeff, as we talk about this, is it interesting to you? I'm not sure that we really dug into this that much. The fireman talks to Agent Cooper, speaks only in extremely vague subject, object, almost non-sentences. When Freddie went up there, he seemed a little more specific. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, rather, I'm, I'm rather taken with the idea, as I have always been, that yes, you know, Agent Cooper, hero, protagonist, whatever else you want to say, maybe the fireman kind of treats him like he's secondary. And when it comes to Freddie, the fireman's like, all right, buddy, so listen, here's, let me be as clear as possible with you here. You need to get this glove, you need to put it on, it'll make you strong and go to Twin Peaks. I'm rather taken with the idea that the fireman offers tantalizing glimpses of things to Agent Cooper, but with Freddy, he's very precise. <laughs> Can I respond to that by saying, now let me give you a theory or an interpretation that completely disagrees with what we just said, but kind Perfect. of builds on to explains what you just said. Perfect. I would expect nothing so, less. That effect that we're describing, the effect that we saw when Cooper disappeared from his meeting with the fireman was similar to the effect that we saw when Laura phased out of existence as a result of the retcon 
her body there on the beach, similar to before then when Cooper materialized through time travel in the past to spy on Laura there in the woods with James. Okay, so that effect is being equated then with the act of time travel, but also the collapse of timelines and the retcon of timelines. So here's a theory for you. What if you're right? What if during his time in the Red Room, Cooper did roam around? What if during that time he had an audience with the firemen and the firemen kind of gave him these clues? And what was supposed to happen is these clues were going to guide him through an adventure in Twin Peaks. Because what was supposed to happen, I think, was that Cooper was supposed to return to the world and solve problems created by Mr. C and Bob and Judy and other things too. And what if those clues were supposed to guide him through something that was supposed to happen in Twin Peaks? Because we might remember that at least some of those clues seem to pertain to things that happen in Twin Peaks. For example, Deputy Andy was supposed to have a meeting with someone who had some information. So the owner of the truck that Richard drove that killed the kid, that owner of that truck was supposed to have a meeting with Andy at 4.30, I believe, on some road off of Sparkwood and 21. So mm-hmm. there you have 4.30. We know that there is a Richard in Twin Peaks, Richard Horn. We know that there is a Linda in Twin Peaks, married to the guy who rode around with Carl Rod, I believe, in that one. Uh, yes. Uh, but there is a Linda that lives in the trailer park. Maybe what was supposed to happen is that Cooper was supposed to return to Twin Peaks and follow these clues and recognize them, and that would lead him on a different kind of adventure. But instead, what happened, Cooper was sabotaged by this conspiracy, this plan that was laid for him by Mr. C that ended up getting him redirected and waylaid in Las Vegas. So he wasn't there then to follow these clues And ultimately, whether the mission that he was supposed to serve uh, a function in Twin Peaks, what I'm trying to get at is that I'm wondering if what the fireman did was that he felt like he had to deputize other people and do other things because he couldn't trust Cooper to save the day anymore because of what had happened to Cooper. So that's why Freddie gets the glove. That's why Lucy plays a role. That's why Andy gets sucked up to have the audience with the firemen there in the late stages of the show. Maybe that was always supposed to be Cooper. I don't know, right? Uh, Um, I love that idea. I love that idea so much. Right. So, and then to build on top of all of that, so that phase out that we see there after that audience Cooper phases out with the same special effect that is associated with either time travel or timeline collapsing. Now we see in retrospect that maybe what is happening there is that whatever was supposed to happen in that meeting is not going to happen anymore because Mm -hmm. that timeline got collapsed because of something that Mr. C did. And 
Moreover, and this is more something more insidious, which is if you kind of agree with... So part of my theory that the Red Room beings tricked Cooper into changing history for the purpose maybe of repairing Bob, part of that deal was that then they had to find a way to neutralize Cooper and make sure that he realized that he didn't do anything wrong. So uh, hook him up with Diane and send him into that parallel dimension where for some kind of happily ever after to give him a some kind of home, some kind of love, some kind of relationship, something that actually mirrors like the Dougie days in Vegas, you know, Diane and Cooper in the motel room having sex, chasing happily ever after equals Dougie and Janie E having sex in Vegas, right? But all of the clues then that he was given by the firemen are seemingly coming true in this alternate reality, but sucking him in deeper. So two ways to look at that then is, is that maybe the Red Room people co-opted those clues to draw him deeper into that fantasy world, get him more and more lost, and make him feel like he's doing something right by being there. Or now coming back or, you know, now blowing up that theory, maybe the fireman recognized that that was what what was going to happen to Cooper. And so he gave him those clues in the red room to start questioning his experience. Lots of theories, lots of ideas. Unlike you, I don't feel an obligation to hang on to one thing. I think that they could all be possible. And I love thinking about all of them. Agreed, agreed. Uh, I do too, Jeff. Any final thoughts, mysteries, theories before we get into handing out some prizes? Not really prizes, just kind of calling out some uh, nominations for the best things that we liked in this season of Twin Peaks? No, no, I want to get into that. You know, the gift that, that the hardcore Twin Peaks fan got from this show is that we got something to think about. So for people who've been wanting new mysteries in the world of Twin Peaks, the return satisfies that. We'll be talking about this, theorizing about it forever. The gift that David Lynch gives to television is just a remarkable piece of art that forces you to engage it like the way that we engage art, you know, to think about it, reflect upon it, wrestle with it. It's a beautiful thing. It's it's a beautiful thing. I can remember talking to you before this new season started and saying that my only real fear for the season was that we would find out that all the mysteries of the original show, all the Red Room stuff, all the supernatural deities, there was no more of that, that it would sort of be the later seasons of some kind of serialized supernatural shows where it's like, okay, Battlestar Galactica, a show that I'll always love. It had kind of generated all of its most tantalizing mythological logical ideas and to me in its last season it was just sort of about sort of following through on those suffice it to say i love that this new season was like oh the red room that's like one percent of this cosmology now and uh, i will always cherish that and cherish all the brilliant ideas that people have about explaining it on any level jeff let's get into handing out some of our favorite things from this season start off with best newcomer New people on Twin Peaks. There were a lot of them. I think over 100. Let's say over 100. Uh, Some of your favorites. Go. My nominees in this category, I think that these are the five that come to mind. The nominees list should be longer. And I have to say that what's guiding a lot of these uh, choices has more, as much to do uh, with the characters as it does just the actors playing them. So 
Robert Forrester as Frank Truman, who I think played out the Harry Truman role just great. Uh, replaced him with a new character, but I thought he was, I thought it was great. Uh, Laura Dern as Diane, uh, Naomi Watts as Janie E., uh, Robert Neppert and Jim Belushi as the Mitchum Brothers, and Matthew Lillard as Bill Hastings. Those are the first five that came to mind for me. Darren, what, what came to mind for you? Some crossover, but also completely different. Uh, I got to give a shout out to Amy Shields, who played Candy. I think the ethereal way that she sort of sashayed through this season is something that I will never forget. I want to call out Jake Wardle as Freddy, a character who really only had a few scenes, but who I now consider to be truly central to the show. Naomi Watts as Janie E. Her speech about being people who drive awful cars was, for me, a true early comedic high point. Frank Truman, the great Robert Forrester, he came on the show and shared some great thoughts with us. And Frank Truman's bulletproof hat, for me, will always be the article of clothing that I wish I had. And uh, last but not least, uh, just another brief role, but really, Jeff, in life, there are no brief roles. Johnny Coyne probably best known to some people as a sort of looming prison warden from the short-lived series Alcatraz. In a very brief span of time, he turned the Polish accountant into my own personal (laughs) and yet oddly horrifying (laughs) action hero of summer 2017. Uh, So full props to you, sir, for uh, inhabiting that part and bringing it to life. I can't tell if you're a heroic figure or something much, much more malevolent. And the fact that you have a submachine gun Uzi while living across the street from the Joneses is a little disturbing. Full props to that. I want to throw in one more uh, nominee in here. Last Do minute, it. just kind of squeezing into the door, reminding me that I think Jane Adams as Constance, the CSI morgue person in Buckhorn, was my favorite budding weekend stand-up comedian. One of my favorite characters of the season in a small role. I'd want more of her. When I think about this list, I think about if I'm going to choose one which character here do I feel absolutely needs to be part of any more Twin Peaks moving forward? And I'm going to say in a close race among many, many, many people, the utterly essential person here, the vital newcomer to Twin Peaks, Laura Dern as Diane has to be my pick here. Yeah, I agree. Because it's like the Emmys, we can have any numbers in this category. So I'll add, I'll add her to mine too and just say that when I think about the moments that besides being fun will just live and haunt me, I think a lot about Diane and not just the stuff where Laura Dern was doing that Dern thing of kind of experiencing every emotion at once. But I think I'll also just think about her at the bar taking drinks taken texts. Some of the most mysterious and tantalizing parts of the season were her doing just that. So Laura Dern, best newcomer. Jeff, follow up. Best returning player. Twin Peaks cast member. Original blend. Stage to return. Who's on your list? The five that are on my list, and I'm probably going to leave people off, uh, that I loved without reservation from the get-go. So I want to be very clear about that then moving forward, because there's a lot of characters, returning characters that I loved, but not always. Audrey Horn, I'm talking about you. So here are the five best returning characters for me. And with the caveat here, I'm not counting 
Kyle McLaughlin, Agent Cooper. That's just a given, right? Yeah, no. So I'm kind no, of... There's a prize here for Best McLaughlin, and he wins that. But also, there's also another <laughs> right, prize. Right, right. There's also another prize that we actually will get to in, in about two seconds. But yes, fully understood. Right. Best returning character, I would say Dana Ashbrook's uh, Bobby Briggs, Miguel Ferrer, uh, God Rest Your Soul, as Albert Rosenfeld, David Lynch as Gordon Cole, Harry Dean Stanton as Carl Rod, Peggy Lipton's Norma, very quiet presence, but loved her quiet presence, then detonating with obviously maybe just the purest, most beautiful, happy ending that we got out of Twin Peaks if we actually believe that it still happened. Uh, damn you, Agent Cooper, if you're a retcon, denied us, uh, Norma and Ed. Those are the five that come to mind for me. My five, in no particular order, Carl Rod, the great Harry Dean Stanton, the line that I think sticks out to me the most from any <laughs> character is the line about smoking cigarettes every day for 75 years. And the smile on his face is just one of the most delightful things I have ever seen. I also want to call out very different kind of a role. Great Zabriskie as Sarah Palmer. Here is a character who oh, I yeah. think, I think the original show, and I think all involved would admit this, really kind of lost track of her. It seems as if they were maybe building up to stuff with her in season two that never came to pass. David Lynch seems to view Grace Zabriskie as some kind of elemental force. And after this season, I think I have to agree. The fact that we're talking so much about Sarah Palmer and she was only in it for a few brief scenes really speaks to her experience. Also want to call out as Nadine, I thought that uh, Wendy Robbie, here is a character who we might have our qualms about her final scene and, you know, her throwing a lot of her relationship with Ed onto her shoulders. But I think when I think about moments from this season that inspired me, I think about the difference between Nadine in the original season and her here and just the profound strength and almost mad glee that the actress took in playing her. By golly, Jeff, she shoveled herself out of the shit and we can too. Just to wrap up, shout out to David Patrick Kelly as Jerry Horn. Sir, your, your profound work will not be forgotten by me, your number one fan. Last but not least, perhaps the most controversial, I'll never forget it. I still don't know what happened, but by golly, that dance number was fucking awesome. Sherilyn Fenn as Audrey. I will worry about your character forever, but thank you for giving us one of the most profoundly unsettling and strange sequences in any television show ever. Good picks all. For me, this fight comes down to David Lynch's Gordon Cole, who I just thought was just a great source of entertainment. He was just so funny and so surprising. And to have David Lynch embodied in a character really kind of helped sell the whole meta of it all, which I really like to think about. And then Harry Dean Stanton is Carl Rod, who I just thought was just a sweet, he was my favorite superhero of the summer, uh, <laughs> taking out that whistle and blowing for the Carl Mobile, uh, racing into action. I would have to say between them, because David Lynch deserves all the awards anyway, I'm going to give it to Harry Dean Stanton for Carl Rod. Couldn't agree more. We all need a Carl Rod in our lives. Jeff. Here's one which will almost certainly cause lots of debate because who really knows? Best supernatural entity. Who's on your list? Um, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna give you three. 
Okay. The Woodsman, uh, the evolution of the arm, the the tree brain guy. <laughs> and in just two experiments, uh, <laughs> in two appearances, capturing our imagination like no other supernatural entity on the show, the experiment. So those are my three. All great choices. My three, I want to give a shout out to the great Philip Jeffries. Doesn't even really exist in this reality anymore, but uh, whenever he <laughs> pops up, it's it's always exciting to see him. Uh, R.I.P. David Bowie forever. Two kind of lesser people who I want to give a shout out to, Jeff. A character who I believe was credited as either woman or possibly a bosomy woman. The uh, key keeper in The Dutchman played by the actor Malachi Sreenan, who is actually an Irish actor. I think I said this in that episode. There was no moment this season that was just more immediately scary and haunting and fascinating for me than that character's arrival. And lastly, we could argue about this, but... I want to just call out to J.R. Starr, who played the MC in The Roadhouse. He just had a couple of really wonderful moments. And his little dance when he was introducing the playing of the song by ZZ Top is a great and delightful scene. Uh, Jeff, I'm going to call this out. I think it's hard to beat the experiment. The Woodsman, super, super interesting new additions. But I think you're right to say that in just a couple of appearances, I'm not sure there is a character who more sort of launched our imaginations to the stratosphere. Would you agree with that? No, I don't agree. No, (laughs) no, because I will just remember this forever. This is the water and this is the well (laughs) drink full and descend. The horse is the wide of the eyes and the dark within the experiment captured my imagination but the woodsman, especially as it's kind of related to that one amazing episode in part eight and the atomic bomb and what Lynch and Frost were trying to accomplish with that metaphor of the woodsman as sort of these supernatural entities that have been haunting and bedeviling and representing maybe um, the dark side of America since the 50s and living within the woodwork and serving evil. It's like one of the most interesting symbols that I've been thinking about all season long. We'll call that a split, but I do love that. Here's one that I think will be a lot of fun. Best Cooper. Who do you have on your list? (laughs) So many options here. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think I counted five. Well, here are the five I have. I could be more depending on your point of view, especially if you think that at the end we saw a guy named Richard. There's Dougie who was the manufactured tulpa created by Mr. C seen just fleetingly with the prostitute Jade and then getting one of the great lines of the season when he gets popped into the red room and gets his head popped off before then he goes, that's weird. (laughs) Uh, Which might be one of the lines of the season. Then of course there's, there's the character that I'm calling quote unquote Dougie, which is, you know, the reincarnated incarnated Agent Cooper in Vegas, kind of trapped in the life of Dougie. There's Mr. C. There's reactivated Cooper, who we followed from uh, essentially, you know, halfway through part 16 toward the end. And then there's new Dougie, uh, the Dougie that came home to Janie E and Sonny Jim at the end in part 18. So do you have any other Coopers to throw in there? Here's what I would add. 
I think Richard is a slightly different character, and I've gone back and rewatched the finale. I'm not sure if it was just the light. It seemed to me like there was perhaps like a little bit more gray in Cooper's hair in the new world. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm looking for something when really I should just say that McLaughlin's performance as Richard in that world, I found profoundly interesting and a little bit different, perhaps even feeling a little bit older than the resurrected Agent Cooper that we finally saw in part 16. But uh, Jeff, I can't be cute about this. I thought Kyle McLaughlin gave at least six good performances as different characters this season. But the moment of his waking up in the hospital and suddenly just being Agent Cooper again is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. So I have to pick that out as tops. What do you think about the best Cooper question? Just celebrate Kyle McLaughlin, who just showed us so much this season with all of these different characters. I admire his performance as Mr. C maybe the most, because I think that that is a look that we just don't really get to see from Kyle McLaughlin. And I think that maybe the biggest challenge of this whole season from the jump, which is, could he convince us of being evil? And I don't know if Twin Peaks, the return works as well as it does if he doesn't rock that challenge. Similarly, playing Dougie as he did for so long was also challenging, but there he was doing something that I feel like I've almost maybe seen him do a little bit before. Um, If you've seen something like The Hidden that he was in, this sort of alien that falls to earth and is figuring his way out. I was more confident in him all along that he'd be able to rock Dougie than he would Mr. C, but he did both. So there were spectacular performances and he really earned Dougie's extended role on the show by making him really funny. But I can't disagree with you, man. I mean, like that moment where Agent Cooper reactivates was amazing. And I loved it. And it was one of the great moments of the season. And also because if you just assume that that Agent Cooper is what we saw in the in part 17 and 18, and that we will be wrestling with that character for a long time to come, I would say that, yeah, for sure, Agent Cooper it was my best Cooper. Let's get into, Jeff, uh, an award that, boy, we had no idea we'd be handing out at the end of this season. Best locale that wasn't Twin Peaks on Twin Peaks. What's on your list? I have Buckhorn, Vegas, and the White Lodge. Tough. Really tough. I'm going to say it. Buckhorn. Because, look, it's probably not going to be everyone's favorite, but I grew to really love that place, I think. And I loved all the crazy characters there. I loved Matthew Lillard's Hastings. I loved Constance. I loved the extended sit with the Blue Rose Task Force there. You know, Diane had most of her scenes there, too. I, I want a room. In, in the Mayfair Hotel in Buckhorn. So um, I'm going to say Buckhorn. You're going to say that. My list, uh, very similar. Uh, Vegas, Buckhorn. I want to give a shout out to New York, only really seen in the first 
uh, very beginning of this season, but the shots of New York City as we move towards the glass box, I think are really interesting. I haven't quite figured it out, but especially the shot that kind of approaches the building, there is something really interesting happening there with the visual, and I'm not quite sure what it is. I'm not sure if it's a model. I'm not sure if it's like a drone shot. Uh, and we'll also just say, maybe it's personal. When I lived in, in New York, I kind of feel like most of my life was uh, staring at a box while living inside of a box. And so <laughs> so uh, the poor boy who does that for the entirety of his Twin Peaks life, I'll always kind of relate to him. I got to say, Jeff, a little different from you, much love for Buckhorn and much love for all the fine citizens there. Mayfair Hotel, despite the show's urging to the contrary, it's not my favoriteest hotel in the whole wide world. Um, <laughs> but the place that I do want to go to is the Twin Peaks version of Las Vegas. I'm just so taken with how Lynch created his vision of it. I think that the imagery that he really glommed onto was really interesting. And I guess I love the overall depiction of this Vegas that is kind of both modern and outside of time, that is both the sort of modern suburb of these kind of little communities, but that is also still a place where these mobsters and showgirls from out of the 50s reign. Uh, let's get into Jeff. Oh, here's one where it'll be fun to see what you have. Best Roadhouse performance. Lots of great choices um, there. I'm going to skip nominees and go straight to winner here, Ooh. which is the Nine Inch Nails. She's gone away. I think that raging, cathartic heartbreak song. And a year in which so much music, great music was performed on that stage. That's the one that just immediately comes to mind for me. Yeah, that's on my list. We'll declare that the winner, but I want to just add three more to the conversation. Shadow by the Chromatics. This is yeah. not a band that I know really anything about, but I will just say that when we were fortunate enough to see the Twin Peaks premiere on the big screen, we've talked about how those were two hours, but we didn't we didn't have a sense of the passage of time at all. So when the Chromatics started playing, I didn't know that was the end. I thought that was maybe still part one we were watching. But what I'll always remember is the moment that starring Kyle MacLachlan kind of came on screen over the chromatic singing. That was for me the moment where I was like, God damn, that is Twin Peaks. And I, I tie that song in so strongly with that feeling. I uh, will also just say that the, the song Lark by the band Ovar Simone, really, really catchy. And we'll also just say the Eddie Vedder song was not initially yeah. my favorite um, out of the sand. I, I think it's a beautiful song. It was not one that I initially would have gravitated to. I have, however, rewatched his performance several times. I think it's a beautiful performance by a really incredible musician. Here's the craziest theory that I have, and I just there's no way to answer this. I am convinced that David Lynch either told Eddie Vedder or just knew the way that Eddie Vedder tends to sing, that, that kind of swallowed way of taking words so words sound like anything. <laughs> I am convinced that the, the lyrics of the song are ultimately, uh, the, there's a part of the chorus, which is, I am who I am. 
The way Eddie Vedder sings it, I swear to God, it sounds like he's saying, Diane, who I am. And this is like in the episode that kind of seems to reveal the truth about the Diane Topa. So if indeed Eddie Vedder intended that or Lynch intended that, then uh, I think that shoots up my list a little bit. But yes, The Nine Inch Nails, (laughs) very hard to argue with that. (laughs) Yeah, but I love... Uh, chromatic shadow and the Eddie Vedder song very very close seconds there Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Jeff here's a fun one for the millennials best troubled (laughs) young person in Twin Peaks (laughs) Uh, I'm gonna just do them all a disservice by not calling by their names or the great actors that played them all so forgive me but uh, drugged out itchy burger flipping girl uh, was one of them (laughs) Uh, Sky Ferreira, Sky memory, Ferreira. Ch- memory challenged girl who can't remember if her uncle's in the room <laughs> and uh, crawling girl stood up by friends yes. uh, are my favorite uh, best young people. I won't give you my winner yet, but who were your nominees? I have on my list, Charlene Yee, all caps, SCREAM. Uh, that is the girl who does the the uh, screaming at the end of that episode. I think it's her, man. I'm not sure anything anything oh, yeah. beats that. Oh, totally. Oh, oh. Th- that is the winner. I just want to make sure that you didn't have any other nominees. But that, yes, she is the winner. Absolutely. Uh, that was incredible. She played a character whose name, by the way, is Ruby, which some people have said is possibly a reference to another performance. Kudos to you. That was an incredible scream. And now I'm realizing it ties into the scream at the end of the finale. We'll we'll save that for the next podcast, 25 years from now. Jeff, best <laughs> bad guy that wasn't Mr. C. My nominees are Richard, Chad, Ike the Spike, Hutch and Chantal, and I would have to throw in the Mitchums in this category as well. Shots fired. Uh, I, too, have Chad, who is not so much just a villain, is just an awful person, awful in every way. Richard, also awful, more aggressively terrible. Ike the Spike, delightful by comparison. I want to call out to uh, when we met Renzo and all his pals at the farm. The the character who by far sparked my fascination the most was the farm accountant. I don't know what he's up to, but it's no good. I don't like him. I don't like him one bit. I don't know what your deal is. You're offering money to Mr. C. Go home, accountant. Maybe you know the Polish accountant. But uh, for me, Jeff, this is a a one-person category. may have some debate here. Full credit to Tim Roth as Hutch. But Jennifer Jason Leigh as a Chantal. I love Jennifer Jason Lee so much. Highly recommend uh, everyone check out her Mark Marin podcast, which she did recently. She's great. We talked a lot, Jeff, about how one of the best things about the bad guys this season was just the kind of utter pointlessness of their departures. When I think of <laughs> Chantal, just for no reason getting angry and like starting to shoot, I think that's going to be my sort of takeaway of the sort of banal vision of Eel from this season. What do you think? Who's tops for you, though? Well, I know you you probably don't like me putting you, them in this category. I'm going to say I'm going to give the award to the Mitchums here. The Mitchums are kind of a little more complicated and provocative. You know, I like the fact that I like them. And I think that's troubling because I think that that's kind of like the provocative thing that they represent. When they suddenly turn around from being people, it is 
it just gets you kind of reflecting a little bit on your own attitudes about these things. I, I didn't really like them. I didn't like, I, I was kind of, their, their whole relationship with the Andy sisters were like very queasy. And of course they wanted Dougie dead. So I didn't like them. But then they love Dougie and they're showering Dougie and his family with stuff. And, but that, does that change their moral ambiguities and uh, all the other things? No, it doesn't. And so I think they provide a provocative challenge in the story. And so that's why I kind of, I'm going to say the Mitchums. You know what? As long as they win some prize, I'm fine with it. So we'll, we'll hand that one to them. (laughs) Jeff, best part by which we, of course, mean episode, but we can't call them episodes. They're parts. We can call them episodes if we want to. What's on your list here? The five that I've selected are part three, which is the one that begins, I believe, in metaphysical space um, in that power station place where Cooper meets with NATO and the American girl and then gets transmitted to Earth as Dougie. And then uh, culminates with this whole Mr. Jackpots thing. I think that was a massive turning point for liking the show. That beautiful sequence in the metaphysical space was just pure Lynch and the implicit odes to Eraserhead. Your first real sign, I think, that this is show that how just personal this is going to be for Lynch and what he's putting into the show. But then the Cooper of it all, the Kyle McLaughlin of it all really detonates and takes off. We're introduced to Dougie, totally challenges us. But this is the episode in which the comedy starts getting dialed up and, and kind of rounding out the tones of Twin Peaks. I think an essential episode. Part eight, of course, got a light, atomic bomb, masterpiece of filmmaking. I don't know what episode it was, Taryn, but I call it part Comic-Con, which is the episode that we got to saw at Comic-Con together with the audience and some of the cast on a big screen. This was the episode in which Bill Hastings met his end. The, the black hole sun opens up and Gordon Cole looks into it. This is also the episode where the car mobile gets swung into action and um, <laughs> uh, Becky goes on her kind of like uh, shooting spree through, you know, her reckless driving throughout Twin Peaks and all of that. That was just such an entertaining episode. Part 16, Cooper's return, the end of Diane was absolutely amazing. And then because we're just going to be thinking about it forever. And it was just another pure Lynch episode, part 18, uh, the finale. Those are my five. Yep. Jeff, those are all great. I share your love of part eight. The part Comic-Con that you mentioned is part 11. I kind of think that there are these hour-long slices you can take out of this season where it's almost kind of obvious why they're great. Part eight is one of those. What a cosmic transcendent moment. I would say also on my list is part 17. When the return happens, the final showdown, Freddy, Bob, that moment of going back in time. I love that so much. But to me, um, what I love about part 11 is it's just so full of wonder and magic. I think it really really was wonderful that we got to see that at Comic-Con because I will always remember in the scene when David Lynch as Gordon Cole is reaching up towards the wormhole and there's that perfect extreme long shot from far away that's just him sort of reaching up. Kimmy Robertson suddenly let out a huge laugh in the otherwise silent theater and I just love that part so much. Uh, Also want to just call out part 15 which features the Dutchman 
and the Big Ed and Norma final act. I think that's like the sacred and the profane, the, the mythological and the personal all in one place. And uh, just a, a what's become a private favorite for me to pick one that is a little bit less high impact. Um, part six of Twin Peaks which I referenced earlier, I would almost say this is like the Dougiest Dougie episode. This is just long scenes of Dougie dealing with his case files and Dougie sort of interacting with Janie E. This is the part where Janie E. meets with the two criminals at the playground. Fair to say, a part that when I didn't quite realize what Dougie was in this season, I think I liked it less. Rewatching it, I was just struck by how full of wonder it really is. This is also the episode where we re-meet Carl Rod and he has that sort of deeply profound and tragic moment with the little boy. So all good stuff. Boy, Jeff, I, I think I can just kind of go on and on. What's jumping out to you? What's the one that you think really sort of sticks out to you as the hour-long slot of wonder from this season? I mean, I think that we would be stupid if we didn't give it to part eight. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's almost like part eight is so transcendent it's almost like, yeah, it's a masterpiece. What else you got? You know, like, <laughs> what, what, it's like it's it's like part eight. You've been well celebrated. You're one of the greatest hours of television that's ever been filmed. You should win both Emmys and Oscars. But maybe we should just honor something else. <laughs> in in that spirit, I would say, for the experience that I had, uh, the laughs that I had, part eleven. Yes, um, yes. Planet, uh, the part Comic-Con, that was just one delight after another. But honestly, guys, part eight is some pretty amazing, audacious television that really announced that this was going to be a completely different and pretty bold experience. So yeah, so the, obviously the award goes to part eight. If we throw it out because it's just too transcendent, I say part 11. Yeah, let's just say uh, if you want an episode of Twin Peaks that uh, features uh, some of the characters who often appear on Twin Peaks, part 11 would, would be the winner for me also. Go, Carl Mobile, go. Jeff, best unsolved mystery. And I'm very excited for any listener to tell us that all these mysteries were somehow solved. What's on your list? Uh, I have one, <laughs> right? Uh, how did Janie E's wedding ring get in Major Briggs' <laughs> stomach? <laughs> Number two, who or what does the American girl represent? Three, Audrey, question mark? And number four, on a more sort of like unresolved storyline level, not necessarily mystery per se, but what's going to happen between Shelly and Red? So uh, that's kind of what I have. Isn't it great that Red, I guarantee if you go back at this podcast, you'd see us saying like, oh, Red is like some figure who like, oh, the, the ultimate showdown with evil. And then Red, Red, I'm now kind of wondering, oh, maybe Fred's whole arc was kind of more this positivist image of someone came to Twin Peaks to do bad and then fell in love. And that's nice. Like I just, I'm, I'm so, I'm so taken. The I like that idea. <laughs> 
<laughs> Did Shelly save the day there? Did she redeem? <laughs> I'm sure the, the tougher read is that Shelly is a character who's found herself, again, the sort of eternal recurrence, getting back in with someone who's involved in, in the drug game. But I just, I'm taken with that. The democracy with which Lynch loved all his characters and the fact that he gave Balthazar Getty that one bizarro scene I'll always love. My mysteries, Jeff, uh, some equally specific. What happened to the security guard in New York <laughs> outside that goddamn security guard th- there's so much attention paid to sort of like looking for him like no he's not in the bathroom and like I know people have kind of theorized that you know we, we did the woman have something to do with it what happened I mean, really the, the the bigger questions are glass box question mark experiment question mark I get all that just want to know where'd that security guard go Audrey the last shot of her profoundly haunting moment that I'll always remember I like how you mentioned the the ring inside of Major Briggs's stomach because I didn't even get that far I just wrote down Major Briggs question mark question mark question mark (laughs) I so want to be like hip and cool and be like nah man I'm down with living with a mystery if Lynch or Frost just said anything about the nature of Richard and Linda, what that means, who those characters are, are they body stepping into pre-existing humans, are they becoming different people, would love that. And last but not least, Jeff, who was Mr. Strawberry? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Uh, God, there's there's a lot to choose from here. They they might all be tied. I think the Audrey thing for me, anytime I've found myself thinking anything definitive about the last two parts of Twin Peaks, always go back to that shot of Audrey staring in the mirror, white all around her. I just, I... It's, it's so it's so unknowable and frustrating and strange, and I find that to be pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm going with Audrey too. Jeff, best scene with no apparent plot importance. Keeping in mind that all things are important, <laughs> would love to know just uh, some of the stuff that uh, jumps out to you. Uh, French lady in Buckhorn Hotel uh, with Gordon Cole, drugged out mother one one nine, and. I guess I wouldn't say I mean, there is plot importance because this character essentially showed up to wrap up a subplot. But this is where I put the Polish accountant, which as a sort of deus ex machina, totally rando moment. But those are my three moments for totally random stuff. I would just add uh, Wally Brando, drive forever down these lonely roads oh, of America. No. Sorry. I that wins. Well, 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 that <laughs> Can't wins. believe I forgot that. But go ahead. T- that, that t- tell wins. me your nominees. Tell, tell could, me your nominees. To be honest, I'm not sure. One could argue that was the most important scene of the whole thing. Um, you know, I also had uh, the 119 lady on there. I still worry about her. I really hope that the cops heard her cries. Uh, <laughs> I also want to mention the green tea latte the fellow at the Lucky 7 Insurance Agency (laughs) sipping the green tea latte. I'm not sure how to interpret this. Is this Lynch identifying the moral bankruptcy of modern-day America by noting that this former coffee drinker has gone to the dark side? Or, Jeff, is this Lynch saying, hey, tea's not so bad? Uh, Not sure, but I think about that a lot. And um, here's where I want to give a shout-out to Dana Ashbrook as Bobby Briggs. The traffic incident 
with the woman yeah. screaming, "What are what are you doing?" is so great. And the reason why it's great, it's all on Dana Ashbrook and his incredible reactions and the fact that we never ever even came close to returning to that. Wonderful stuff. I, I'm at a loss for choosing here. I am kind of inclined to to give it to uh, Wally Brando just as a way to uh, break the tie. What, what do you think among this list, Jeff? Yeah, the Wally Brando thing. I just remember watching that whole scene and just like, what what is happening here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and just loving it all. So all these moments, great moments though. But I would say the Wally Brando one. We're getting towards the end here. Here's one that I know will be very important to David Lynch at least. Jeff, best tree. What's on your list? <laughs> uh, uh, Jack Rabbit's Palace. Out there in Ghostwood Forest uh, Woods, uh, uh, the, the evolution of the arm and the giant tree that saw the final moments of uh, Stephen and Gersten there when they were huddled there at the base of that tree and poor Stephen killed himself. Those are my three favorite trees. Those are the three that I have with one asterisk that I specifically want to give a shout out to the little evolution of the arm who appeared in Las Vegas <laughs> just long enough to say, squeeze his hand off, squeeze his hand off, squeeze his hand off. <laughs> um, I want to give this to, I want to say the evolution of the arm because I think that a barren tree pulsating with electricity is somehow as Twin Peaksy as Twin Peaks gets. But boy, Jeff, and we talked about the effect it had on us, Jackrabbit's Palace Maybe here again to give a shout out to Dana Ashbrook. I felt like that was sort of childhood relived and fallen and found again in one incredible image. So I think it's hard for me to beat that as far as trees go in Twin Peaks this season. Tough to pick trees there. I do like that one too. I think that just being so surprised by the evolution of the arm, I I have to give the award to that. You know, I am the arm and I sound like this. <laughs> that was great. Can we also count, if we're counting that, I think we can also count the doppelganger who... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Non-existent. <laughs> yes. Oh, God, there's no yeah, other show yeah. like this. Uh, Jeff, to wrap this up, and maybe this is going to be impossible, best single shot or image from this season. What's on your list? What sticks out to you? The detonation of the bomb, just that explosion. The scene with the woodsman just framed, talking into the microphone. This is the water, this is the well, doing that. For me, one of the haunting images of the season is the sex scene between Diane and Cooper and just those shots of either A, Diane looking toward the ceiling in despair, or B, using her hands to cover Cooper's face was really haunting. I think that the moment that you singled out from earlier in the season with Cooper as Dougie looking up at the statue and just meditating on it, and alternately the scene where he's like trying to use the sleeve of his coat to emulate the gun or maybe try to like, you know, because he's getting cold, whatever. Just those, those shots were great. And then Laura's scream at the end. Those are my five nominees for images. 
This worked out perfectly. I have all different ones. I want to mention the scene of Sarah Palmer watching the boxing match. There's this one framing in particular that haunts me. She's sitting down. She stands up. Just the perfection of that degraded image and I'm so happy now to imagine that that is the Black Lodge and it's not this you know the planet apocalypse in the DC universe it's not like Hades it's just that this fallen in vision of of domesticity I love that on a more positive side Dale Cooper turning to the camera turning to Bushnell Mullins saying I am the FBI sends a shiver down my spine because it was called out in the final episode so much I find the shot of Laura whispering to Dale I can't think of anything more intensely tantalizing to come out of this season and the fact that we we don't know what she says it's the unanswerable question I love that I want to mention a shot that we either miss read or we read in the weirdest way possible amanda seyfried looking up towards the sky in ecstasy i i I love that so much that was another moment sort of earlier in the season you know before part eight i find that as you kind of mentioned earlier jeff there are these episodes you look to where you're like okay i'm getting into this i understand this now that was a moment where i just felt the full flowering of twin peaks and full credit to amanda seyfried uh hey we thought you were playing the new laura palmer boy were we wrong or maybe we were right becky hope you're okay we're not gonna ever find out i guess love that shot i want to mention And this is really just a recurring image, the intensely graceful shot of the log lady, that kind of medium shot of her whenever she would call Hawk. I I think it's a graceful and wonderful gift that Catherine Coulson gave to us with her friend David Lynch, her appearance on this show. And I find that just thinking about the log lady up there makes me happy and sad all at the same time. And uh, last but not least, number six, Jeff, whenever I'm feeling stressed out, whenever I'm worried that all my dreams for the future are not going to come to pass, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to order some coffee, I'm going to sit at the counter, and I'm just going to close my eyes and hope for a moment that everything will turn out exactly the way I want. The shot of Big Ed engaging in what I insist forever is undoubtedly transcendental meditation. And as the camera moves in on him, you see Grant Goodeve, the most evil man in the world, walk away behind him. It's a little ghost of a smile that starts to cross his face. And then from off of the frame, the hand comes, touches his shoulder. It's the woman he's loved his whole life. He turns around. Tears are in his eyes as he smiles and says, marry me. You know what, everybody? That's where I'm going to leave Twin Peaks. Or at least if there's an ending you can choose, that's the ending that that I want. How do we choose, Jeff? Oh, wow. I think yours are so good. Um, When I think about my brain watching the show, I think about the A-bomb. But I love that moment where he is... It's not really a shot because there's movement within it. But, oh, you know another image that's really great? (laughs) Just to throw it out there. 
Gordon Cole sitting in his chair with the photo of the A-bomb framed behind him <laughs> was actually kind of, there's another one. Um, Isn't he whistling in that scene? You know, whenever David Lynch yes. passes into yeah. the next life, whenever David Lynch gets to meet the major, which I assume is many decades away, I hope that that is the moment they play at the Emmys and the Oscars for him. I yeah. couldn't agree more. What an incredible image. <laughs> I'm going to go with that one because I think that in terms of what I have engaged this show with all you listeners out there who have endured me saying meta or Lynchian um, <laughs> throughout all of this time together. I'm going to go out with a meta Lynchian moment of David Lynch framed against the backdrop of that A-bomb photo as sort of for me the defining image of the show. I'm going to go out with uh, Laura whispering to Dale Cooper because I've certainly claimed some real estate in the who cares if we ever solve the mystery camp of Twin Peaks. And I can't think of anything that sums that up better. Jeff, I think we're just about wrapped up here. Do we have anything else? Well, we'll be talking about Twin Peaks forever. So what do we have to talk about? Well, we have everything to talk about. But if I could just take a a little personal moment here. This has been such a fun journey to take with you, Darren, to continue our entertainment geekly conversations that we've had over the years in podcast form to now just sort of really geek out on Twin Peaks, The Return. It's been uh, one of my most favorite things I've ever done here at EW. And so I just uh, I love the fact that we got to do it together. So thank you for great conversation. And it's kind of fitting. When I started here, Darren, my first year was 1998 to 1999. And my favorite assignment during that span of time was working the David Lynch beat. I went to Cannes and covered the straight story. I wrote a profile, Richard Farnsworth. I interviewed David Lynch um, at his home twice that year, once for the straight story, and then once for an oral history of Twin Peaks for EW's 10th anniversary issue. And in my first year of assignments here, those were the favorite things that I ever did. And for me, they kind of summed up why I even wanted to work for Entertainment Weekly and why I even wanted to get into entertainment journalism. I just loved storytellers and pop culture, and I really wanted to meet the artists, specifically writers and directors, and just talk with them about their work and how they work and visiting them in their space and uh, see how they work. And my favorite journey in entertainment journalism is driving to Lynch's house and then walking up through the stairs to his backyard and then taking this trail that winds up through this backyard to his painting studio and meeting him there. And one time when I interviewed him for Mulholland Drive, I walked in and uh, there resting on his desk with this, this giant dismembered bird's wing just <laughs> sitting there on his table. And then, but also kind of looking at whatever paintings that he was working on in those moments. And for me, getting to know an artist and, or just, inter- I, mean, I can't claim that I know David Lynch, but just to be able to meet with him and talk with him in that space was pretty magical and kind of summed up everything about what I wanted to get into this job for. And so it's fitting here that now, what, 18 years or however long I've been here, we're doing this podcast and it will be the last thing I do for Entertainment Weekly because I'll be moving on at the end of this coming week here and uh, leaving EW to, you know, moving on and doing some other things. Hopefully maybe in time I'll be able to talk to you about and 
and all of that, but very grateful for this job. And I think it's fitting that Twin Peaks kind of bookends it and Lynch bookends it. And uh, fitting that, you know, my two favorite things I've ever done here at EW was doing crazy lost videos with Dan Snearson and doing this podcast with you, Darren. So I'm glad that we finished out this way. So uh, thanks for taking that journey with me. Uh, Jeff, uh, it was a... <clears throat> So sorry, I'm uh, I'm fine. I'm fine, um, Jeff. Uh, it was a true honor and the best thing that I've ever done at Entertainment Weekly, and the most excited that I've ever been to wake up at 5 a.m. on Monday to get to talk about uh, Twin Peaks <laughs> with you. If I can just briefly indulge myself with a bit of autobiography, uh, there was a time when I was also a young man. We were both once quite young, Jeff. This might be hard to believe. We uh, were quite now, young, yes. Now that I have a beard, I'm actually older than you, but um, there was a time <laughs> uh, when I was a young man and I was casting about trying to figure out what, what I would do on this world. And uh, at that time, I was a big fan of the magazine Entertainment Weekly, but I was especially a fan of this guy who was doing a lot of writing of this show called Lost. And if people were able to dive deep into the internet, they might even find incredibly imitative recaps of Lost written by a younger version of me in deference to a younger version of you. And uh, there have been times when we've been working together, Jeff, where you have guided me and you've been a true mentor for me. I will always remember many years ago when I tweeted something really, really cynical about Jack the Giant Slayer and Oz the Great and Powerful. You kind of got in my face about it. And I think you kind of saved me from cynicism in a way. And I will always be very, I will always be very, very thankful for that. And I guess I would just say, you know, Jeff... I think one of the great things about Twin Peaks is that you once made the point that all the characters are kind of Lynch in some ways. And, you know, all the characters are Frost. And maybe as we watch the show and as we grow older with it, we may feel differently about different characters. I kind of think that everybody on some level feels like Laura Palmer and Dale Cooper at times, both the victim and the profoundly frustrated investigator trying to solve some essential unsolvable mystery. But that also means that the people in our lives around us can come to symbolize different people. And uh, I guess I would just say that I, I don't know much about life, but I do kind of feel like I had a person who was guiding me and passing me clues. So thank you for being my own personal fireman, Jeff Jensen. You're a fine man. <laughs> You're a fine man. And uh, I will not soon forget your kindness and decency. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. So thank you. And I think it's fair to say that we all look forward to seeing uh, whatever you're doing next. Thank you, man. It's been really amazing to see you come here and engage all of yourself and your imagination and your talent and writing and watching you grow and flourish. And I'm really excited to see where you go from here. I'm, I'm one of your biggest fans too. So, you know, I also, I almost feel bad to know that I, I shamed you on Twitter because <laughs> getting off of Twitter is, is uh, Twitter is a horrible thing. Twitter is the Black Lodge of our <laughs> world, I think. And it just brings out the worst in us. We are all our own doppelgangers on Twitter. So the fact that I said something to you, I feel like I, I need to spend 25 years in the Red Room as penance for that. Lest you forget, after that, we also recorded a two-hour podcast about it. So I think you might have done your penance. <laughs> Oh, that's true. I will never forget 
for any of us who listen to us back in our Entertainment Weekly podcast, I think that our great argument about Man of Steel, one of my favorite pop culture conversations, and with you... One of the reasons why I wanted to get into this too wasn't just to meet artists and understand them, but to really kind of engage pop culture deeply with people who cared about it. And you embody that so beautifully in terms of how you care about it on so many different levels, like formally, just the content, uh, but you have fun with it too. I've enjoyed, as I was getting kind of old and cynical and cranky in my old EW age, to be able to talk with you uh, and to kind of engage that energy, kind of reminding me of like, oh, this is why I should be in it, was a huge rejuvenating pleasure. So um so thank you for everything you represent, Darren. Well, I'm honored. Uh, if I helped keep you young, then I kind of feel like I, I grew up a lot in the best way of getting to know you, Jeff. So thank you. And before I continue to wipe tears from my face, a lot of other thank yous to say right now. I want to say a very special thank you to all the guests that we had throughout this season. Damon Lindelof, John Thorne, Kyle McLaughlin, Laura Dern, Robert Forrester. We are so blessed to have had you here. So wonderful to have had all your thoughts about this season and about stuff in general. Great that we finally got Damon Lindelof's definitive plot summary of A Christmas Story on tape. Just a little shout out to all of our sponsors for making this happen. Shutter, ZipRecruiter, and ProFlowers. Everybody use them if you haven't yet. A very special thank you, as you might imagine, to our editors at Cadence 13 especially Chris Basil, Bill Schultz, Sean Sherry, and Lou Pellegrino. Uh, you made the audio sound good. You made us sound like the best doppelganger of ourselves. And most of all, a special thank you to the silent partner, the person whose work really only begins when we stop recording, which since we've been recording for over two hours means she has a lot more work to do on this one. But Christina Everett, the person who was there for us all season, bright and early, and was there for us when we were at our most insane and was there for us when we edged ever so gracefully into the four hour mark and beyond. None of this would have been possible without her. And she's listening to this. So uh, she knows that I mean it when I say thank you from the bottom of uh, both of our hearts. Me too. Me too. Thank you, Christina. And uh, just to kind of conclude here, Jeff, uh, Thanks to everybody for listening. Thank you for sticking with us when we didn't notice the name Richard Horn in the credits. Um, <laughs> I, I have to admit that, uh, you know, I've, I've said this before, I, I was very much still the newcomer in Twin Peaks, certainly compared to Jeff. And, uh, you know, coming into this season, Jeff, I, I love what you just said about Twitter, how it can sometimes feel, feel like the Black Lodge where we are our worst selves on there. I feel that way and I kind of throw myself under that bus first and foremost. I look at a lot of stuff I've tweeted and just said, like, come on, man, that's not you. You're the guy who talks for like five hours. But I would just say <laughs> that to all of our listeners... This was a rather stressful summer for the entire world, I think. And uh, it was a stressful summer for me in a lot of ways. And I know that I personally drew a lot of joy and stability and happiness from the generosity and the curiosity and just the brilliance of all of you who were talking at us. It made waking up early that much more fun. It made it feel like Twin Peaks was really kind of going on all week long. So uh, thank you very much to everyone. I want to affirm that. And I now I take back everything I say about Twitter. Uh, <laughs> but as a, a medium that connects us to people like our listeners, let me just say in my fumbly way how much I appreciate you guys listening and enduring us and engaging us 
yeah, it just means a lot. So thank you guys. Just to kind of begin to wrap up here, if you do want to keep tweeting at us, and you know, I say, I, Jeff, I think it's fair to say it can be the Black Lodge and the White Lodge, and that's okay. But uh, I certainly okay, feel as yes. I certainly feel as if the Twin Peaks fandom was my own personal double R diner. Which, by the way, why was that time distortion happening? No, 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 we're not going to get into that. But uh, <laughs> if you all do want to uh, chat with us, we're still on Twitter. He's at EW Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich, not a doctor. Maybe someday. You can still email us, twinpeaks at ew.com. The conversation will, will continue forever. Give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think. Uh, Jeff, do you have any final thoughts you want to share with us? I just feel incredibly grateful and thankful for Twin Peaks and for this experience. Like, uh, yeah, yeah that's uh, I, I'm bad at final thoughts. So, so Jeff, no final thought. Jeff, let me try to help out here by returning us back to the beginning of a lot of different things. If you'll indulge me, Jeff, I want to quote from one of my holy texts, something that I looked to very, very frequently when I was a younger, younger guy. I'm talking, of course, about the spring 2000 issue of Entertainment Weekly, which was the 10th anniversary edition of EW. There was an oral history in there. Uh, it, it was titled Our Town, uh, written by the byline is Troy Patterson and uh, some kid named Jeff Jensen, who would come to be my hero. I want to just uh, leave us with some thoughts from David Lynch from the end of that piece. There is no ending. It's part of a continuing story. I visited in my mind, Twin Peaks. It's frustrating in a way, because there are many clues and threads that have yet to be followed. But it's kind of nice having them out there, because they have not been solved, and because there's threads to dream on. Don't mind me, just just wiping some tears away over here. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, I love that. That was great. That that was a great ending. Like, thanks for finding that, yeah. 